This is Live from Ukraine, a conversation with Ukrainian voices taped live on Twitter Spaces. To join future audiences, follow me at Benjamin Wittes. You are listening to Live from Ukraine from Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, a highly experimental podcast recorded live before an audience on Twitter Spaces featuring Ukrainian voices on the current conflict, full-scale invasion, situation, whatever you want to call it, war, special military operation. Our guest today is Maria Avdiva. She is the research director of the uh, European Experts Association in Ukraine. Uh, We are uh, talking to her today about uh, the uh, her recent uh, trip in the Donbass and uh, and her analysis of uh, what the situation there looks like. So, Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, of course, this is a war and a full scale invasion, because uh, as an expert on disinformation, I can tell you uh, absolutely sure that uh, special military operation is a Russian coin term to cover their war crimes here. Uh, and before I speak about uh, the Donbass, I would like to say several words uh, uh, about my work so that people will better understand what I have been doing since the beginning of the war. And then the, probably the uh, questions at the end will be uh, more direct and I will be able to cover them uh, more specifically. So, uh, And just to be clear, I was using the phrase special military operation ironically. Uh, not not earnestly. Of course, I understand that completely. Just to be 100% assured that everyone is on the same page as we are. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so start us uh, off by telling us a little bit about uh, your work uh, in general and before, like, what did you guys do? What were you working on before the war? And, and what are you doing now? Yes, absolutely. So uh, since 2014, I have been researching Russian disinformation uh, because I live uh, in the city of Kharkiv. Uh, I'm quite sure that everyone in this group knows where the city is and it's 40 kilometers from the border with Russia. And in 2014, Russia also made an attempt to create the so-called Kharkiv People's Republic and uh, to make this referendum what they have done uh, uh, in Donbass. And uh, we clearly saw uh, that uh, to, f- to make this possible, Russia used disinformation. Russian special services uh, were preparing the ground for the military operation, uh, for the, the uh, occupation of Crimea, for the uh, military invasion in Donbass. And that's why I uh, decided that uh, f- from that time, this is uh, very important for me to uncover uh, research and uh, bring to the world and make people aware of the uh, ongoing Russian disinformation campaigns that didn't stop for a moment since the beginning of the war in 2014. Uh, So what I have been doing, I have been researching the main narratives of Russian disinformation, writing papers about that and uh, speaking on the conferences, uh, providing trainings for Ukrainian civil servants and uh, uh, media and journalists as well. And I have been uh, myself uh, also uh, quite active in uh, writing uh, different kinds of uh, materials for uh, Ukrainian and uh, international uh, media and uh, research uh, institutions. Uh, so uh, basically on the 24th of February, I had my ticket uh, to Kiev uh, because I was supposed to speak uh, on another conference uh, about uh, how Russia got full control uh, over Belarus uh, and uh, how uh, they are uh, using uh, Belarusian space for possible uh, uh, for possible um, military operation. And uh, at, the mo- at the morning uh, when I uh, woke up for the train, I heard the sounds of the shelling. And for me, uh, that day, the, this new phase of invasion started. Uh, I decided to stay in Kharkiv. 
because uh, as an um, expert on disinformation, I saw that immediately with the start uh, of the military operation, uh, another wave of uh, disinformation started spreading all across uh, Russian-controlled uh, media and especially Telegram channels. So they were, uh, at the first days, they were pushing the narrative that they are very successful uh, in this uh, war. They call it military special, uh, special military operation. And that, that they were claiming that they will get control over major uh, Ukrainian cities uh, very fast. In fact, the uh, editor-in-chief of Russia Today, Margarita Simonyan, uh, posted on her Telegram channel picture uh, of Kharkiv uh, main administrative building with Russian flag on it, uh, saying that uh, we've got Kharkiv. So in Russian, it reads uh, Kharkiv Nash. And uh, my colleagues and friends immediately started calling me and asking if they see already Russian troops or tanks on the streets of Kharkiv. And uh, that was the moment I decided that I need to stay in the city and cover uh, the situation there and also continue uh, debunking Russian disinformation. And uh, at that day, uh, at the beginning, we still not aware of how awful and uh, uh, how cruel and evil this war will be. And uh, already when the first uh, information about the death of civilians started to come, and uh, uh, we had received more and more information about the, uh, how Russians targeted uh, civilian objects, uh, since that, uh, I also started to concentrate on documenting Russian war crimes, uh, mainly in Kharkiv, because I, was, uh, I have been living there, so uh, I would go uh, every day uh, then on the streets of Kharkiv, make short videos about uh, what was happening uh, to the city, about the recent bombardments, uh, and uh, uh, so trying to keep uh, the world informed about new and new atrocities that uh, Russia brings uh, to Ukraine. And especially it was important for me to do in my home city. And uh, as you probably know, Kharkiv is a Russian-speaking city. And also it was uh, very important for me to see how the mood of the people in the city changed in the first day of the war. Because uh, before that, uh, uh, people of Kharkiv were mostly not, uh, so they were not considering Russians as their enemies. And uh, since from the first day of the war, uh, Ukraine became united in our will to fight with the aggressor. And uh, I saw uh, my role uh, in this war and continue seeing it like this to uh, contribute to uh, covering uh, these war crimes and uh, informing the uh, people throughout the world about uh, what what is happening and uh, by doing that I hope Ukraine gets more and more support and uh, as what is especially important now if we move to the uh, now to, to the uh, situation on the front lines uh, is getting more and more weapons because uh, without this uh, uh, we will not be able to win this war. Excellent. So, uh, so thank you for that overview. A couple of uh, clarifying questions. What has your main mode when you say covering? Uh, uh, are you mostly operating on Twitter and on social media? Or is there an outlet uh, through which you're doing most of your writing that people can follow? Yes, uh, for now, that's mostly Twitter. I most uh, of the time I try to do short videos because the visuals allow people to see more clearly what is happening and especially when I am on the spot then I all every time try to, to, to record some short videos. Uh, writing uh, uh, is not now, uh, I don't have as much time as I would like to, to do writing, but I do cooperate with uh, different media and uh, usually we would do it together with someone. So I will provide factual information, uh, like speak about the uh, concrete uh, things that I see and uh, someone who will be contributing by uh, editing and, you know, putting in it a like, nice story that could be published. But I also did some uh, some pieces by myself, for example, for the Institute of, of uh, 
War and Peace in London and uh, some other uh, some other institutions. Uh, so, uh, but of course, the the the, the most important uh, channel for now is Twitter account. Yeah, I, so many people tell me that that it's just the and and it's certainly the main way that I get my information. You know, uh, from uh, you know you have a certain number of first-rate media operations that have uh, active presences, but it's not clear to me that, you know, that you do better following media than by following a really well-chosen uh, group of, uh, you know, sort of specially chosen Twitter accounts. The, the, the quality of the information can be very, very high. So, you know, some of us uh, outside of the country really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank so, you, Benjamin. That's that's great to hear, and that gives me additional motivation. So thank you for these kind words. So, uh, so talk to us about the situation in Kharkiv. There was a period early in the full-scale invasion in which, you know, Kharkiv was really threatened and was being. Uh, we were afraid it was going to be overrun. Uh, it was taking very, very severe um, bombardment damage. Uh, a lot of people were being hurt and killed. Uh, now it does not seem in any kind of imminent threat. So uh, walk us through what the, what the situation is for the city right now, uh, how bad the damage is, and how, how confident you are uh, that Ukrainian control over Kharkiv is not uh, is not facing like the, the war has gone on to other places. Right, uh, Kharkiv was always uh, one of the targets uh, for for Russian offensive, and it will continue to be. And for this, the very simple fact says that it's only forty kilometers from the border with Russia. So even uh, if the Ukrainian troops will and be the able, second largest city in the country. Right, absolutely. So even if the Ukrainian troops will be able to push Russians back to the border, which at the moment uh, uh, we couldn't do at, at the whole uh, at the whole region, uh, Russians will be able to shell, uh, continue shelling the city from the territory of Russia, and they do this. They have deployed uh, several battalion uh, Iskander uh, multi rocket launchers in Belgorod region and they don't move them from there so for them it's possible to continue shelling and bombarding the city from the territory of Russia it's very close so what happened uh, just a quick uh, very brief overview during the first days uh, Russian troops managed to get uh, to the border of the city so they were uh, located on the borderline of Kharkiv and uh, because of that, they were shelling the residential areas close to that, that locations very intensively. And it is to the north and northeast of Kharkiv. The biggest uh, residential area in whole Ukraine uh, is located in Kharkiv. It's called Saltivka. Uh, the war, uh, 400,000 people were living in that residential area only. So if you can imagine, it's multi-story apartment blocks buildings and the whole big very big area is covered with these buildings and russians were uh, all the time showering uh, this area with rats and uh, over there most of the uh, these buildings are uh, very heavily damaged and that's impossible to live in them uh, some of them can be repaired, but not all of them. And uh, that means that uh, as this is a residential area, there were also numerous schools, kindergartens, supermarkets that were also severely damaged uh, because of these attacks. And the same happened to the, to the areas to the northeast of Kharkiv. Me, myself, I live closer to the city center. So I was witnessing these uh, uh, air bombardments when uh, Russian fighter jets uh, flew uh, over Kharkiv and they dropped bombs uh, on the city center, uh, which uh, a lot of buildings were are now severely damaged. It's historical center, historical buildings, and I don't think that, that they will be, uh, it, it will be possible to rebuild them because uh, they are from the beginning of the 20th century, 19th century, some of them. And uh, they were like, if the, if the bomb was dropped on top of the building, it flew, it made its way throughout to the f ground floor, destroying the building completely. 
so uh, this happening uh, for first two months, March, uh, for February and March. And then uh, in the April, uh, Ukrainian troops started to uh, the counteroffensive operation and they step by step pushed uh, Russians further. Uh, in May, the biggest success was when uh, Ukrainian troops uh, in one location made it uh, to the border with Russia. And uh, they put the, even the border sign there, the Ukrainian border sign. But uh, all the time it was a very heavy fighting. So Russians didn't withdraw as they did, uh, for example, how they did in uh, north of Ukraine, uh, in, in Kyiv region or near Sumy. So every kilometer was a very heavy fight for uh, Ukrainian armed forces and territorial defense units. So they were uh, trying to push Russians as far as possible. And when it was successful, uh, for, when they moved them further than 20 kilometers, the uh, range of uh, Russian grads uh, was uh, less than that and they were not able to continue shelling the city as intensively as they did before. Of course, there was all the time a very a big threat of rocket strikes and uh, they could uh, use the uh, other uh, rockets which have a longer range, but they couldn't use what they did before, uh, multi-rocket systems, uh, because, because of the range. Uh, and then uh, the situation uh, like, like this was, uh, uh, was during the May and beginning of June. But then, uh, and I have been uh, going at that period of time a lot to the uh, recently liberated villages. So the villages that were under Russian occupation, then they were liberated by Ukrainian troops. And I spoke a lot with the people there, local people, and their biggest uh, fear was that at some point uh, Russian troops will try to regain control and will try to get back uh, and occupy again these villages. And people were really scared because uh, they have spent, uh, uh, some of them, almost two months hiding in the basements without any basic necessities. So they usually didn't have any water, any electricity, any gas. They were not, uh, so they, they didn't have anywhere to get the, their food from. And uh, so when life started slowly to get back uh, to these limited villages and to Kharkiv itself, Russian troops again started to push and started their offensive. And right now, uh, again, very heavy fights are happening in the north uh, of Kharkiv region because uh, Russian troops are trying to regain uh, territories and villages from where they were pushed out earlier. Uh, so for Kharkiv, it's, uh, Kharkiv will be under the constant threat until this war will be over because I don't see uh, any possibility uh, for normal living in the city uh, until uh, Russia stops its, its offensive and uh, until Russian troops are moved out uh, completely uh, to the uh, border with, uh, to, with Russia, so to, to the territory of Russia itself. That's interesting. So you, so, so you're not confident that Kharkiv, there will not be a sort of second battle for Kharkiv. Well, uh, Russia will not be able to get control over the city. They never actually um, very seriously attempt to do that. At the beginning uh, of the war, there were several groups of uh, light military vehicles trying to get into the city, but these attempts were really weak. And uh, they were uh, like eliminated on the spot very quickly by Ukrainian armed forces. What Russians might try to do is to uh, encircle the city or like uh, semi-encircle and make living in the city impossible. Kharkiv uh, is a city with one and a half million people. And even if like one third of people has left, still it's one million people in the city. And it means that uh, it's very easily for Russians now to create a humanitarian catastrophe in right. the city. And I think that's what they will be aiming at. So they will probably not try to get control over the city because they will not go through the city fightings, but create uh, the situation when people will be lacking electricity, water, in winter, no heating, for example, then this will be a disaster.
So in the meantime, the most uh, significant fighting has been in the Donbass region, where you have recently been. Um, right. So tell us about your uh, your uh, travels there. We get a fair bit of news about what is happening on the front, but it is not uh, the same as uh, being there. So tell us about being there. Right. Um, so we have been traveling uh, all the south, uh, starting from Odessa, uh, Mykolaiv, then uh, some of the Kherson region and the, the uh, region uh, of uh, Donetsk. And of course, uh, so if to start from the less, uh, uh, like from the more normal situation, if we can say it, then of course it's Odessa region. Uh, the, there the threat of the uh, rocket strikes is very persistent. But the, the, still for the uh, landing operation, the Ukrainian armed forces say that uh, we are prepared for that. And I saw that Ukrainian military is really prepared for to combat any kind of uh, uh, on landing operation. So uh, for, for that, Mykolaiv now is uh, very uh, heavily shelled because uh, Russians are shelling the city from the occupied territory of Kherson region. And uh, the heavy fightings are all the time happening uh, there on the border with the occupied territory of Kherson region and the liberated, uh, the liberated areas. And then if we, uh, that's for the south, and then if we move further uh, to the east of Ukraine, uh, of course, uh, the, 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 the heaviest battle is happening more, uh, in uh, Luhansk region and in Donetsk region. Uh, so to put it simply, um, uh, Russia tries to get full control over the territories of Lugansk and Donetsk in their administrative borders. Because uh, before the war, uh, Russia was occupying, and I say occupying because this uh, puppet uh, government never was considered to be independent from Moscow. So they were occupying parts of the territories of uh, Donetsk uh, region and Lugansk region. So when Putin declared the war, uh, Kremlin said that they uh, now recognize the sole republics in their full borders, so uh, full full, uh, full borders uh, of the regions of Lugansk and Donetsk, and that is why uh, for Russia uh, it is number one goal now to get control or try to get control over these regions. So there was a very heavy fight uh, for Severodonetsk. And uh, at the end, the Ukrainian uh, army uh, moved out of the city. And now the next target for the Russian offensive will be the city of Bakhmut. Uh, we have been there uh, just uh, several days ago. Uh, it is uh, so while in Bakhmut, you all the time uh, hear the ongoing shelling, both outgoings uh, uh, and incomings. And uh, uh, Especially during the night time, it is very loud, and uh, the the uh, artillery doesn't stop for a moment. So you like constantly hear these booms all the time, and uh, the fact. So how the military described the situation there as an artillery duel. So uh, Russia uh, overwhelms uh, Ukraine in terms of how uh, much artillery they use. And that is why Ukraine is all the time asking for and more weapons, because as the quicker we will get heavy uh, weapons, meaning artillery, uh, the, uh, the better uh, will Ukrainian forces will be able to fight back and to push Russians back or at least stop uh, their offensive there. Because they say that at the very moment, even one, uh, for example, Haubitz uh, uh, appears uh, in the Ukrainian zone of control, it immediately changes the situation because uh, it has a very long, so much longer range than old Soviet uh, artillery uh, Ukrainian armed force now using. And uh, it allows them to contact. And uh, it, uh, so the situation changes drastically at the moment uh, the, the, the new weapons arrives. So that's why it's so important now. But uh, still, the situation there is very difficult. I am sure you have uh, heard that uh, about the losses among the uh, 
Ukrainian military, uh, and uh, we have this uh, uh, heartbreaking news uh, every day that one some someone lost a father, a, a son, uh, a friend there uh, on that front lines uh, in Donbas. So we hear, I think, broadly speaking. Uh, in Washington conversation, two versions of what's going on in Donbass. Uh, one of them is uh, that the Russians are making slow but grinding progress in a kind of war of attrition and incrementally uh, uh, taking more and more of the uh, uh, territory. Uh, the second version is... I suppose not inconsistent with that, but is kind of what you hear from the Institute for the Study of War people and, uh, you know, that the Russians are, and, and actually I think a lot of U.S. intelligence estimates, that the, the Russians are uh, grinding away, are actually really at risk of exhausting themselves, and uh, they are potentially, you know, sort of the longer the longer this goes on, the, the greater the exhaustion of Russian supplies and, uh, you know, frankly, personnel uh, becomes setting up a uh, potentially uh, significant Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, I'm curious whether you have a, an, an instinct about what the, what the right, real situation is here. Is this, is this something where, where we should expect in the fall or later in the summer, uh, a, a significant movement in the other direction? Or is this really the question right now really is, you know, how, how far are the Russians going to be able to go in, in the seizure of territory? Well, they for sure will be aiming to get control of Bakhmut, Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. That's the three key cities there for them. And they put now everything they have to get uh, to, to this aim. Uh, because uh, this is crucial for Putin and uh, for Russia uh, to to get as much as possible uh, of these territories. Uh, and uh, I don't think that we are now at the moment when they are running out of, uh, uh, of people or uh, artillery there in Donbass, because uh, still they have a lot of... Uh, uh, old, uh, both old Soviet artillery and some something new. But then, uh, anyway, they are attacking now, and uh, uh, they are attacking with everything they have, and concentrating everything there on this uh, uh, in this area. So uh, the uh, for the situation might be changed uh, if we will Ukraine will receive more heavy weapons quickly. Uh, this will change the situation and this will allow uh, at least to stop uh, or uh, slow down uh, the progress uh, in Donbass. Because uh, uh, for now, uh, the, uh, the Russians uh, are attacking very severely uh, on all directions. I am sure you have seen this uh, uh, footages of uh, street fire in Severodonetsk. Everything there looks like uh, uh, we have seen in the uh, images of uh, World War II uh, when uh, these are uh, very severe fights uh, going on uh, on the streets and uh, everywhere uh, and in in all that area and already some of the area, if not uh, if even if it's not uh, uh, under Russian control, it is already considered a gray area which is not controlled by any side. So where these uh, uh, some saboteurs groups might be moving, uh, some um, uh, people uh, going in and out, I mean, the military and uh, uh, completing their uh, some tactical operations. So uh, the situation is very fluid. And uh, uh, for now, the threat uh, is very real that they will try to capture some more territory there. But as I say, uh, it again very much depends on, uh, uh, on the ability and uh, of uh, Ukrainian troops to uh, counter uh, act uh, having the uh, new weapons. All right, we are gonna go to audience questions um, momentarily. Um, and our first question is from Ev. Ev, the floor is yours. Um, do you hear me well? 
Yes. Yeah. Great. Um, you said that the way people in Kharkiv perceive Russians changed, that they're hatred towards Russian increase. Can you use some uh, concrete examples of that? Uh, it's not increased. It's just totally changed. So there is, I have been uh, for the whole period, never heard anyone saying that they feel warm towards Russia since the beginning of this new offensive. Uh, a lot of people before had some relatives, some, I don't know, relationships uh, with uh, the Russians because it's so close. And the, uh, there are numerous cases when uh, people will call their close relatives. We had uh, the case when a woman was uh, living in Kharkiv metro for two months. And her mother uh, lived in Moscow. And she was calling her mother, telling that she lives in the metro because her uh, house is uh, destroyed because of the Russian bombardments. And uh, the mother will not believe her. And that's the, generally the feeling among Russians. And we see it very clearly. So the support from their side to the war is growing. And they uh, support the violence. Uh, and they support more killings of civilians. And of course, no normal uh, being in Kharkiv cannot uh, approve this. And uh, people feel uh, that this is the enemy right now. And I have seen like uh, children's uh, drawings, traumatized children who are hiding in the basements and who drew, uh, uh, who made drawings where they will depict Russians as an evil attacking something peaceful. Antti Ruakonen, the floor is yours. Thank you. So uh, how do you view the uh, uh, German position with regard to uh, military aid to Ukraine or the rather the lack of uh, or the ver very, very incremental progress that uh, Germany has uh, made during this war? Thank you. Yeah, that's actually one of the spots we were able to visit is uh, now where this uh, new Haubitz uh, uh, 2000s uh, are used. So 12 uh, Haubitz were uh, supplied uh, uh, on the 22nd, I think, of June. And they are now already on the front lines and they are very useful. And uh, the uh, uh, Ukrainian military who are using them and who were trained in Germany how to use them uh, say that th they are really great and they they are treasure for for the for, for them now because they allow to do things that they were not able to do uh, before. Of course, if you ask anyone if the uh, the aid is too late, uh, yes, it everything should have been uh, provided earlier and uh, even before the start of the war. Uh, every every kind of uh, of weapons, but still uh, now those whom I'm speaking to are thankful for the aid that is coming. Uh, we appreciate it and uh, we wait for more to come as fast as possible. And uh, so the the mood, if we look at the what German mood, what moved in Germany, yes, was before uh, the 24th uh, of February. And now the supply of heavy weapons and uh, Chancellor Scholz promised here in Kiev that they will supply more. So this is a very, uh, very mm, noticeable change and very important change. And uh, I think that uh, while this has changed already, uh, so we will, uh, it's the, the main thing was to start here and we will be getting more and more help from Germany as well as, as from uh, other partners who are supplying uh, weapons to Ukraine. Um, M? Uh, I, I'm not sure what to call you, but your uh, ID just says M. Uh, your question, sir. We're having trouble hearing you. Um, uh, are you still muted? Uh, I'm afraid uh, your voice is not coming through. Uh, I will try again in a moment. Uh, Fernando Amado, the floor is yours. Uh, first of all, um, I would like to to say, uh, Maria, my, my deep, profound admiration for your work and for the attitude of Ukrainian population, which brought, brought back to Europe uh, the sense of freedom, the importance of freedom um, 
uh, and I, I, I just wanted to begin uh, telling you my deep admiration for your work. I have been, I have been uh, watching your, uh, reading your messages and, and I admire very much your work. Uh, but my question now uh, is about the Ukrainian future. Uh, do you believe, in talking to the population, uh, does the Ukrainian population uh, you have access to believe uh, that President Zelensky might be right uh, when he tells us <clears throat> that he wants to take back all occupied um, territories, including the Crim, <clears throat> uh, which military experts, at least here in Germany, and I'm also calling from uh, and in the West in countries, uh, do not believe, uh, especially concerning the Crim, uh, that many military experts don't believe that it will be a realistic uh, aim uh, to achieve uh, taking Crim back. Uh, even about Donbass, uh, many people are not sure if it will be possible to take back um, uh, the Donbass for long term uh, uh, and to uh, push back the Russians. So what is your belief? You are in the front. You have been watching the things um, uh, from, from a very near perspective. Uh, what could be the future for Ukrainian? What, what could be, which could be the, the, uh, the trustful uh, Western guarantees for the future uh, to not to have again this Budapest uh, paper? Uh, you know, uh, something Ukraine can trust in for, for okay. the future. So uh, how, how would you answer to these questions? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Fernanda, for your questions and for, for your kind words. Uh, I really appreciate it. And again, it gives a lot of motivation to hear uh, that, uh, they are, that this is important uh, for others, what I do. So uh, starting uh, from your, so I will go one by right uh, along your questions about the mood of the people everywhere, uh, especially in the south and in the east, uh, people want to get back what was occupied by Russia. I never, ever heard from anyone, starting from the like truck drivers, farmers, uh, uh, territorial defense uh, people, military, that they are ready to give something up. No, the mood is we want to get back everything that was occupied and Russians go back home. That's the general mood. Uh, it's uh, uh, about your question. And so what gives people a motivation is that... Uh, it, it is, you can easily compare it to a robber that dropped into your house and uh, raped your family member. And I cannot imagine anyone saying, okay, now you can stay in this room and I will be living here and we can make a peace deal with you and from this moment continue uh, together living in one home. No, that's, that cannot be possible in any country and it's not possible in Ukraine as well. Uh, and no matter how high the Ukrainians are paying the price, we, uh, like, we mourn for our warriors, for people who were killed, but they died already for Ukraine to be free and independent. And we cannot betray their memory by saying, okay, now we, we, we think that this is the, the line for, for which we can uh, uh, now give back uh, something to the Russians. No, this will not happen. Uh, so uh, for... Uh, for your next question about Crimea, uh, I heard President Zelensky saying that it will be very difficult to get back the territories uh, that will be uh, that were occupied, and probably some of them will be occupied in Donbas, say for example Severodonetsk. So the, it will take a lot of effort from the Ukrainian armed forces. And deoccupying Crimea was always a goal. No one says that this is an immediate goal. And if you look at this realistically, we understand that it will not be possible uh, to, to do in the uh, very short perspective. But Ukraine will never admit uh, illegal occupation of Crimea. And it will also all the time will be in Ukrainian foreign policy and in foreign policy of our partners that no one recognizes this uh, uh, illegal occupation and the aim will be to deoccupy Crimea. The question is why, but, uh, sorry, the question is when we will do that. Uh, and uh, we will do that, but probably not, it is not the uh, aim that we put uh, on the table um, at the moment, as I understand it. And uh, speaking to the, the question, as, you, as I understand, your uh, third, uh, uh, third question is about the possible... Uh, treaty, uh, I think this is not uh, on the table at the moment. When uh, three, uh, actually four presidents uh, were in Kiev, 
uh, all of them said that uh, they will not push Ukraine for any kind of negotiations uh, uh, about the uh, any kind of deal uh, with the aggressor state. So this is the Ukrainian uh, uh, what Ukraine has to decide. And the mood uh, of people, as I have said, is to get back everything that uh, has been occupied. So for now, uh, it sees from, from my perspective that this will be a long war. And we have to prepare for that. And we need uh, that the help and that the support that we have will not less. And uh, so uh, other countries and our partners will continue to support it as much and they were doing it from the beginning of the war. Okay, let's give M another try here. Unmute yourself, sir, and let's see if we can hear you. Hi, Benjamin. Maria, can you hear me? Indeed. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering um, how the um, Ukrainian armed forces are coping uh, medically in the field hospitals. Are they able to cope with the number of casualties and evacuate and treat them um, as they would like to? And also... For the civilian population, how they are coping medically in the hospitals? Are they able to run um, effective medical care and how the partners are supporting this? Yeah, from what I have seen, uh, the uh, speaking about the military, the uh, they try to evacuate uh, uh, wounded soldiers as soon as possible to the uh, hospitals which are allocated further from the front lines. And it very often is very dangerous because the evacuation routes, as you have probably seen, are all the time heavily shelled. And uh, it's, it's, this, this, this is one of the most difficult parts to get people, if we speak about Donbass, to get people from the uh, uh, war zone, from the front line to, to the territory where they can be properly treated medically. And especially what, uh, aid, uh, what adds to this, um, Russians are constantly trying to find, bombard, uh, so uh, uh, destroy the field hospitals. They are searching for this information everywhere in the social media. And if they find a clue where this field hospital uh, located, uh, the next day or the several days after, uh, there will be a huge rocket strike on that uh, spot. And I have seen these locations myself. Uh, and uh, this is... Uh, that's why uh, all the information which concerns the medical treatment of the military is held very secretly because uh, that is what Russians are hunting for and that's uh, what are they trying to do is to uh, all the time hit and attack those, uh, those locations or those uh, ambulance cars or routes of, uh, from, of evacuation. Speaking about the civilians, uh, the situation uh, like differs, so people are advised to evacuate from the uh, villages and cities that are close to the front line, but they not all the time follow the advice. And when the, the front line moves already to the city or to the village, it's very difficult to evacuate civilians that were wounded there. And the, the uh, Ukrainian armed forces are doing that mostly. So they will try civilians and try to somehow get them out of this uh, uh, dangerous zone to the uh, more safer area where they will have, uh, uh, where they will be treated. Speaking about the hospitals itself, I have been to several uh, in the territories in Kharkiv, in Dnipro, um, uh, in, uh, in Odessa. So they are well equipped. The uh, partners and those countries who are helping, they are providing uh, all the necessary uh, materials and uh, medicines to the hospital. So hospitals have enough. The biggest problem, as I have said, is to about the front lines and getting evacuating people and getting them to the safe areas. Raoul Spinat, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is, have a good day. Uh, my name is Rauf. I am from Azerbaijan. Uh, hi, Maria. I uh, thank you for your sharing with us your, um, your opinion, your view, uh, it's your memory uh, from war, your story. I uh, remember you from first day of war, first week and second week of war, your um, several interview in live coverage in German uh, state television of Deutsche Welle uh, English news channel. Uh, 
I want to ask you just, uh, and first of all, uh, congratulate uh, Russian leave uh, Zemeni Iceland, and yeah. I think that it's a huge win for Ukraine and Slav Ukraine. I have a one only question, a lot of questions we have, a, uh, maybe we are asked until tomorrow, until morning, but not end. Just one question. Uh, what do you think about that? Uh, actual two questions. It's capable of uh, potential Ukrainian army. Uh, and second question, how uh, we are uh, protect, uh, prevent civilian casualties and how we are protect the civilian? Because Russia direct, uh, targeted civilian infrastructure. And I uh, every day in contact uh, my friends from uh, Ukraine, it's not lost uh, positive. I mean, heroically uh, defend own country. Uh, how we uh, defend uh, civilian people. Thank you very much. Slava Ukraini. Glory to you. Slava Ukraini. Thank you so much, Rao, for your wonderful question and for uh, pointing out this mean. Yeah, it was, it's a big news uh, here today, especially after the Russian Minister of Defense, uh, this uh, response that this is an act of goodwill. This is Yeah, the more, the more weapons you get, the more goodwill they have. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. That's a great mem as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, so speaking about uh, the, uh, the your question, so uh, how can we prevent, uh, how can we defend civilian population? So uh, in the cities that are close to the front lines, cities like Kharkiv and Mykolaiv, people are advised to stay in the city only if they even add something for the defense of the city. But of course, we understand it can, it's not every time the, uh, the, the case. So some people stay and some people don't want to leave their homes and uh, they are under high risk all the time. And Russia deliberately targets civilian uh, population that what has been doing since the uh, beginning of the war and that what is continued to be done the recent attack uh, on the uh, large mall uh, in Kremenchuk horrifying attack uh, on, on the shopping mall in the middle of the day uh, uh, attacks on the uh, residential houses in Mykolaiv we again uh, get more and more people uh, that die uh, well, how can you protect from the enemy that is deliberately uh, uh, targeting uh, residential areas and houses with uh, missiles and rockets? Uh, people are advised to, to ignore the uh, air, air alarms and uh, hide in the, uh, in the basements. But uh, you, of course, clearly understand that the people cannot leave uh, for, for the like, whole uh, time uh, hiding somewhere. And uh, that uh, exposes them to the risk because they start to live some kind of normal life, go out on the streets, and then the rocket hits at the place where we were not expecting it to happen, like it happened in Kremenchuk or Ypro or anywhere. And uh, it's happening all around the Ukraine. So Russia is constantly, so for this, the, the, the big threat of the uh, uh, Russian missiles that they uh, launch from from Black Sea, from the territory of Russia, from Caspian Sea. And uh, the only way of how to stop Russians of doing this is to provide Ukraine more air defense systems, modern, that will allow to stop these rockets and that will safeguard the civilian population. So that's the only thing. And I'm sorry, I I didn't get exactly the second part of your question, if you can repeat it. Yeah, the second question was, uh just uh, how do you assess the development and capacity of the Ukrainian military? Well, Ukrainian military was great from the very beginning because it is a very highly trained personnel, highly motivated, uh, which have been already doing, uh, so participating uh, in the war since 2014. And many people whom I see on the front line, they say that they are already, that's their... Uh, uh, already uh, eight year in the war, and uh, of course they they are uh, they they are very motivated, very well trained, and they fight fiercely. And add to this territorial defense units, which already have experience uh, and which are also uh, fighting for their uh, for their homes and for their families. And this motivation, with if we add there the new weapons 
this is a very strong power. And I think actually for uh, frankly speaking that Ukrainian army after this war will be one of the best armies in the world. Terrible burden. The floor is yours. Hi. Uh, so just to give a little context, uh, I recently, I have a friend who recently had to leave Saltivka, so I know a little about what's going on there. But um, so you've, you've addressed the civilian medical treatment and civilian safety, but for obvious reasons, there are a great number of people who are out of work and who likely had little in the way of savings before this. Um, what is the government doing to help basically keep people going there as far as food and basic requirements? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. So uh, there are several directions in that. Uh, for example, if we speak about Kharkiv, there are several great volunteer organizations which collect humanitarian aid and distribute it to the people who are in need, especially this will be elderly people, people who cannot get the food for themselves. And sometimes uh, they will... Uh, so uh, provide already ready-to-eat meals, hot meals every day since February. So these people are doing an incredible job uh, and uh, doing this. Uh, also, uh, if to speak more broadly, the government has this uh, program of uh, support uh, those who, lose, uh, who lost their jobs. So you have to fight for that specifically. And then there will be some help from the government, not much, but still. The biggest question I think uh, is for now with the with housing uh, for those people who whose uh, apartments uh, were destroyed. Uh, they have to comply to, to fill special forms, but uh, of course filling the forms doesn't help you to have the roof. So uh, this uh, this I think this will be the major issue for now and in, in the upcoming months uh, because we are facing the cold months is to come. And um, for, for that, I think that uh, Ukrainian government will be developing some programs. So they are working on that. I don't think that we have something uh, right now, but uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, something will come up and probably some international help in that direction will be coordinated so that people will have places uh, where they will be able to live. I was going to uh, wrap up, but we have two more questions that I really want to get to. So I'm going to uh, take the liberty of running a couple minutes long. Walter, uh, the, uh, the, uh, 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 the man behind the Walter report and uh, one of the first guests on live from Ukraine, uh, you get the penultimate question today. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you, Maria. Um, thank you for all the work that you do. My question will be somewhat... Uh... Challenging, maybe. Uh, what's your take on the current mayor of Kharkiv, Terehov, about um, implication of him being essentially a collaborator in one way or another? Or does he stand how how much neutered, essentially, by military civilian administration? What are the risks uh, that he still uh, presents, uh, if there are any? Because right now he's somewhat under the radar, pretending to be a big uh, peacemaker with humanitarian aid. And there were also some issues with the FBU, SBU or security service chief in Kharkiv area. Sorry for the challenging question, but I, I believe Tiariho is an issue. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Walter, for the great question. And I'm happy that you are deep into the uh, the situation in the city. So uh, if I, from my personal perspective, uh, the situation in the city is totally controlled because we have, uh, if it wouldn't be so, the Russians, I'm 100% sure, will find the way of how to penetrate, you know, and to try to influence on the situation in the city. It, it didn't happen. And it means that the power uh, in the city and in the region itself is strong. Ukrainian power, I mean. And uh, speaking about the personality of him, uh, he was elected and uh, voted for him. And uh, the mayor is someone who is responsible for keeping up the city going so that the garbage will be uh, cleaned, the streets will be cleaned, uh, so the maintenance will be uh, done. So looking at the, what the, the city council was doing within the city, I think they were doing a very good job. For myself, 
several times uh, my house was cut of the electricity and water supply and it was restored in uh, days and sometimes hours and people uh, and this is what city council is doing they are responsible for that people these uh, workers were working under the shallot to restore the supply and to get out the garbage and to continue city living uh, under the constant shell. And it was terrifying, especially uh, when the attacks were really heavy, to see that, uh, you know, the, uh, the the city workers are still on the street continuing uh, doing what they, uh, what they did before. So uh, for this, I would say that the city council is doing uh, their work uh, fine. Uh, what about, uh, speak about the chief of the security service, uh, so uh, now the the main uh, like uh, main body for which is responsible uh, for the region uh, is as you of course know civil military administration and uh, they have a staff uh, and uh, they control uh, whole situation and uh, if there was someone uh, who was uh, not loyal or was not doing his job uh, properly and he was now pushed out uh, and uh, is no longer taking the position, it means that the, uh, this is the good sign. So the bad sign would be if the, such a person would still continue uh, working uh, or not working uh, on, on this position. But uh, it means that uh, it has changed probably. Uh, we would like uh, if, uh, if someone was not doing his job properly to do it, uh, to make it happen earlier, but it happened when it happened. And uh, again, so the main uh, idea which I want to share is that uh, uh, the city is totally, fully, 100% controlled by uh, Ukrainian uh, administration, Ukrainian government, uh, Kyiv government. Uh, so uh, there is no possibility for any kind of Russian influence because if there were any, they for sure would have used it previously. Ev Gomont, you get the last question. Thanks. Um, you've been going the streets regularly to see the atrocities. You wanted to document the mood of people in Kharkiv and Donbass. I'd like to ask, are you doing in all of this? Uh, sorry, what, what is the question? I, you, after going in the streets for a long time, like seeing yeah. all of the atrocities going on right. at the moment, I just want to ask, like, how are you doing? How am I uh, stressed, of course, with everyone in uh, Ukraine, especially uh, uh, it's difficult to cope uh, with, uh, with the deaths of the civilians, uh, children, and uh, uh, the war doesn't stop for myself uh, for an hour. So that is, uh, I'm living in this for uh, now, more, how it's long, more than four months uh, every day. And uh, there is no moment... Uh, for myself, uh, when you know I can put it aside and start thinking about something different. Uh, for now, I have strengths, uh, and I fi find these strengths uh, uh, in this in talks like this. When people say that this is important, and I see the importance of my work, and I continue going because uh, I this is the less I can do. I all the time think that uh, I am not doing enough, and I have to do more. And that is what a lot of people in Ukraine are feeling, uh, trying to, uh, to, to do everything what is possible to make at least uh, uh, somehow the victory at least uh, a little bit uh, closer. And uh, that, that, that's what gives us strength. We are going to leave it there. Uh, Maria Avdiva, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for hosting me. This was a great talk. And thank you for all the uh, wonderful questions uh, from, uh, uh, from the, our listeners. I really enjoyed And uh, thank you for following. Thank you for supporting. Please continue to support Ukraine because we everyone and uh, every, everyone counts. And uh, to, as I always say, uh, only together, only united, we will win in this war against uh, the evil. We will be back uh, next week. Uh, as always, uh, you can see when the next uh, Live from Ukraine is going to be. I always pin it to the top of my Twitter feed. Uh, and so you can always find the next one there. And of course, uh, please do share the podcast version, which is how most people uh, access this. Uh, and if you haven't already subscribed to it, uh, please do so that you don't miss uh, future episodes. 
We will be back and thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Live from Ukraine is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Uh, You know, the engineering, I'm doing it myself because it's Twitter spaces, but it is produced and edited by folks at Goat Rodeo. Thanks for listening.